Thank you for listening to the Silver Club Podcast. Here's your host, two-time Walker Cupper and former world amateur number one Steve Scott, and men's golf coach at Yale University and golf historian Colin Sheehan. All right, Colin, back for episode 35 of the Silver Club Podcast. How's it going? Very good, Steve. Springtime, May, <laughs> courses are opening. <laughs> What could be better? Everyone, I'm, I'm getting such a vicarious joy for all of those people in those states that sort of essentially got, they, they got a stay of execution. <laughs> they were released I to know. be able to, to their golf courses. No, I, 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 it makes me feel good. I giggled at you because I know that you, you, you start a lot of your pods out. You're funny. You're, you're, <laughs> uh, we're, we're very predictable, you and I. I know that uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of social media posts out there going on and People are starting to trying to get back into this game, huh? Well, seeing seeing these states uh, become available, it's like a it, it's like a it's like a surprise birthday party, <laughs> you know? Like in yeah. two days, your golf course is going to open, and and the countdown, and and the combination of being outside, act, walking, and the the physical activity and the of playing the game. That's a those are three things that Lori Santos at, at Yale would tell you makes you happy. So it's like, uh, it's, 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 it's a win, win, win across the board. Yeah. And by the way, I will say this for Northeast people that know their spring golf in the Northeast, um, there's about 12 shades of spring golf. And so what every week that I say that it's spring golf, like there's a celebration to early May that's yeah. different to early april which is different to late march which is when you they you know when you typically are opening the courses all the way through memorial day i mean there's like every week of the spring is a different layer and a different reason to be grateful so when i if i said to you hey it's springtime and it's great and on april 4th that means something entirely different on May 4th. <laughs> yeah, May May is really when I, you know, when I was the head pro up there in the Met section, I really felt like that was the, you know, once we got into May, we were good. And a lot of people like last year at this time, we were just about getting ready up at Bethpage to play the PGA Championship. And a lot of people were saying that it was going to be a difficult, I mean, it was a toss up whether the weather was going to be any good. And you know, the weather was fantastic. Uh, there just wasn't really a lot of leaves on the trees and whatnot, but uh, the course at Beth Page there was absolutely perfect. That was amazing. That was our first and uh, first chance to have that sort of Masters and PGA back to back month month apart. That was I I, I was very much um, afterwards really. I thought that was a fantastic decision and the way to go. And I, I'm glad that we'll be going forward in the future. That also was, um, <laughs> the, the PGA was when we realized that Tiger was not going to complete a grand slam in his calendar year. Uh, I think we saw the limitations on his own. It happened. It happened really quickly too. I remember I, I was fortunate enough to cover that for PGA.com. I was working with Brian Katrick in the, Booth, and we got to cover that morning round of Brooks Kepka, Francesco Molinari, and one Tiger Woods. And they started out way out there in the 10th hole. If anybody's ever played Beth Page Black, starting on the 10th hole is like starting in another another zip code. I mean, you're, 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 seems like you're miles away from the, the clubhouse and the first tee, and you don't get to hit a practice ball for like 40 minutes. And you know, your back gets tight, and it was in the morning and cold, and it was a bad recipe. Tiger starts off with a with a double, and it just uh, didn't get a whole lot better from there. But Kepka went out and shot sixty three that day, so he uh, dominated the the headlines uh, totally. Uh, so, what's going on up there at the Yale course, and you know, how are your players adapting to things? And did you have any seniors that graduated? And how how that all kind of play itself out here as we're moving into may well the students like a lot of college students they're all sort of in this kind of um pass fail um you know grading system where i don't even know i think you'd have to do something pretty drastic to fail they're technically in, the, in finals right now um remotely and i think 
I think for them and for college students everywhere and well, high school students, all students in North America around the world are dealing with a kind of new reality. And so it's not the usual kind of um, crunch that they, they would be in. Um, I did spend the last week last um, we would have, we would have played the Ivies about nine days ago, eight days ago. And, uh, and the week afterwards is when the sort of exams sort of begin to ratchet up. And so I'm thinking about my team all the time, um, texting with them, but you know, it's amazing how, what a difference, what a difference this spring makes over all others, just on, on so many different levels. And I, and uh, I miss them. I will admit that I I listened to their um, I listened to their Spotify playlist and all of their kind of spiritually uplifting, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know, electronic, you know, Avicii and Quinn I X I Quinn I I music that they love so. Much. <laughs> all right. I probably... will say, Steve. I will say this. This okay. this year was the was the you know my the old coach's head would have exploded. Uh, my predecessor, Dave Patterson, if you saw how, how much that the players listen to music, you know, on little, little speakers clipped to their bags and in the carts and things like that. And this past year was the year that I was never against it, but it just became, it just became standard operating procedure to have music in the group in practice, never, never in a tournament, of course, but even, but even practice rounds, we listen to music and, you know, Again, Lori Santos says it makes them happy and peaceful, so I, I won't get in the way. You know? <laughs> what would your what would your old coach think if you guys were listening to music in practice on the golf course? Yeah, I don't know. Times have changed a lot. I don't know what what Buddy Alexander would have thought about that. Uh, yeah, I, it it actually makes me think. You know, you you talk about kind of this new school of listening to music or not listening to music in the old school, quote unquote. It kind of reminds me of of our next podcast guest, Brett Sirgalis, and. He's got a great book coming out today, Golf's Holy War. It's really a uh, talks about the the battle of the art of golf versus the science of golf, and we're going to get to that in a moment. And I uh, just want to remind all of our listeners as well. We had a, a, a back in about half of uh, our podcast life ago, episode number 17, we had Ron Reed as well as another author, uh, wrote a great book. He was the starter of the U.S. Open, and he wrote a book, uh, entitled that, talking about all his times on the first tee at the U.S. Open. But, you know, we try to get some cool authors and writers on this uh, on this podcast, and, and that's been, been really neat. One other thing uh, I want to plug as well is our Greatest Club Champion series through the Silver Club, all of our s- social media pages. And I'm just going to read one here so you can kind of get this to heart because anybody out there who's listening – can nominate their own club champion. They can nominate themselves. Maybe it was their father. Maybe it was a club championship that was passed down through the family. The son had to beat the father to capture it. Uh, I'm just going to read this one real quick, Colin. Uh, This one was about a a prolific champion in the Mets section, a gentleman named Peter Nicholson, who currently works for the Metropolitan Golf Association. And he had a dominant run at Mount Kisco Country Club in Mount Kisco, New York, just a little north of the city. Uh, Peter had a tremendous run during his life as a member at Mount Kisco Country Club. Currently 68 years of, years of age, 1990 was his first club championship at age 39, and in 2019 was his most recent at age 68, He's become the champion a whopping total of 17 times and has captured club championships in his 30s, 40s, 50s, and his 60s. Uh, Longevity and consistency certainly has been a calling card for Nicholson so much that his fellow members call him Robot. And uh, just some cool things that uh, one of his former club professionals, Chris Case, submitted to us. And uh, I I love these club champion stories, Colin. I mean... We're getting a lot of them to come through. We're posting one a week, and you can look on all of our social media sites at Silver Club Golf on Instagram and Twitter and on Facebook and on everywhere. But uh, do you have a, a – is there a club champion story that really sticks out to you in your mind that you've known over time? Yes. Um, I, 
I grew up uh, working the bag room and caddying and picking the range at the country club of Fairfield when I was a teenager. And uh, a mentor to me who lived around the corner from where my, my, where I lived was Tom Graham. And he, he, he may have won the, the club championship at the country club of Fairfield 20 times. I might, maybe even more uh, from the seven, from the late seventies all the way in easily into the, uh, into the new millennium. And, and he was an outstanding player, you know, just a different guy who had won the senior division of the crump and played his golf also at Seminole. And, and he, 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 so what I love about all those champions that you just like the one from Mount Kisco you mentioned is for every win, there's probably a runner up too. I mean, I love that. Like he might've, you know, it's, you're either winner or runner up over 20 or 30 years. I, I, I just admire that so much. Yeah. I, I wish so I would have known how many times he was runner up, but I'm sure probably a handful you would think. Yeah. And every club has them. And I love, and I, that's one of the things I always love scrutinizing in a, in an old, clubhouse with the old honor boards and you see the the ladies club champion or the men's club champion and from some eras and and it, and then sometimes they they battle their own children in the sort of standings it's always very cool it sounds like if he's mm-hmm. by the way if uh nicholson was named robot then he's on the science side of this equation of brett's brett sergalis's book you know steve the one thing i want to ask you is yeah watching, watching you play in those sort of famous usga matches with a little bit of wrist action in your putting. And you, to, to me, it looked, to me, you look like you emphasize the art side of the game. Is that, is that fair to say? I, I told, I think so. I mean, I've, I think over time I've, I've utilized the technology very little. I think I've actually got worse when I practice with it. Uh, it's good for a point, maybe fitting a driver or trying to understand, you know, carry distance on wedges or something like that. But, Overall, I definitely I would consider myself a, an artist, a uh, you know more of a right brain type of player when I'm out there on the course, and just I, I I see a shot and then I just try to feel in my mind, in my hands how to execute it, and then you know, hopefully uh, hopefully it comes off the way I'm picturing it. But well, yeah, it's a I'm an artist out there for sure, and I you know one of the best tips that I ever got. Um, or thought of or something along those lines when I'm putting, I really feel like the head, you talk about art, I, I feel like the head of the, of the putter is like the, the brush of a paintbrush and I'm kind of just brushing it across the green and that's my visual when I feel the tempo or try to visualize the tempo of my putting stroke and I think that's carried with me uh, a long time and it's helped a lot. So there's no question knowing your numbers are helpful and tendencies and understanding maybe, you know, there's no question that there's sort of some diagnostics that would help golfers. However, tell me in your mind, what might be some of the sort of pitfalls of getting kind of too far down the rabbit hole of, of, of numbers. What, what, what can you tell the sort of, cause I get a lot of kids send me their track man numbers. And of course I'm like, well, what's shoot. But tell me, for for listeners out there, what what would you what would you sort of sort of say about that? I equate all the uh, the 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 swing technique or the numbers you can produce on a track man as kind of one piece of the whole entire pie of what your score ultimately is, right? Because how how we're judged in golf is is it's not how did you shoot, it's what did you shoot. Give me a number. That's all I want. You know, because the number goes on the board. There's no room for stories on the scorecard. It's just a number, right? So, so really, I think, I think too many people coming up with all this technology, you can get a little lost in the fact that you think that, okay, if I get my TrackMan numbers right or if, if my swing looks perfect like Adam Scott or Tiger Woods in the year 2000 or even now or like that I'm going to go out there and I'm going to score well and I'm going to, I'm going to shoot the numbers I want. I'm going to get into the college I want and et cetera, et cetera. But what people don't understand is that the golf swing is a, it's a vehicle. It's not a, it, it, it's not really the destination. It's a vehicle for you to, to shoot the scores you want, but you have to understand how to shoot the scores and your brain has to understand how to navigate a golf course and when to play aggressive, when not to play aggressive like when I play out there, when I'm playing in a, in a competition, 
I'm always taking a, an analysis of, of how I'm feeling at that point and what my, uh, where my strengths are. If I'm driving the ball really well and I get up to a hole where it's questionable if I should hit driver or lay up with an iron, I'll probably hit driver that day because I'm taking an assessment of, you know what, I'm hitting it well today. I'm going to put the pedal down. And I'm going to try, to try to put it down there so I can get a scoring club in my hand instead of playing uh, non-aggressively. And I think understanding how to play the game and how you play is as important or more important really than the actual numbers and angles and all that stuff. Yeah, I see. I, you know, the old school teachers, like I love how they always focused on the ball flight. They looked at divots. Um, You know, I think they were there to, as a check, but, you know, the analogy I would make with certain sort of the modern standards is that in the old days, the swing, a swing instructor was, a, was there to sort of catch an ailment. And now they're there to provide a blueprint to a lifestyle that you need to live, right? Like Jack Nicholas won 18 majors with Jack Rowden, and he might have spent a long weekend with him once a year. Yeah. I know you, you've told me and our, our listeners may remember how you sort of reached the sort of uh, the echelon of golf you did from the time you were 14 to 18 without any lessons at all. And it's, that's, I, I feel like we have lost that sort of, we have, we have created a narrative where it's almost, it's, 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 it's contingent for success to have uh, not just the occasional set of eyes, but sort of around the clock kind of uh, babysitting. You you don't but you don't own your swing at that point though. Somebody else owns it. And That's a great point. And and when when you rely on somebody else and I and I've gone through different iterations of understanding, you know, what I do well and what I don't do well and and look, maybe there's some people out there that really need, you know, the hand holding and the they need the backswing coach and the downswing coach and the short game coach and the mental coach and the trainer and the, you know, physio, whatever the case is. And like, you know, there's, there's players out there that have all these coaches. If you, you go out to a PGA tour event and you just watch the circus that is on the range. Um, I was out of Pebble beach earlier this year doing some work for PGA tour live. I took two pictures. I post them on my Instagram page and one was of a young Australian. I think his name was Cameron Smith. And he had about six guys behind him. And then I, I panned over to the left, and Johnson Wagner was over with his caddy with a carry bag, and, and, and that was it. Like, he didn't have anybody. He was far away from the circus. And uh, it, it was just it was interesting to see the dichotomy of, of players. Maybe that has to do with the, with the eras that, you know, Johnson's around 40 or so, and the younger guy was maybe 23. So... Maybe he didn't, the younger guy didn't really know any different. And this is how, this is the only way that he can do it. But when you're always reliant on somebody, you can't call your, your coach when you're choking your guts out and you're on the 17th hole and you've got to put this ball in the fairway and you can't, you have to go back to your Rolodex of thoughts, not, not your coach's Rolodex of thoughts, because, you know, you're not going to be able to, to, to fix it fast enough. You got to be your own best coach, I think. Uh, I find this I find this kind of conversation so fascinating, and oh, Brett I could talk about this all day, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. And the, the one thing I will say is that, and I'm not talking about anybody specifically, but these the notoriety of the instructors, it, it's not unrelated to the fact that it came with book deals and 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 their and their hourly rate when they weren't on tour went from you know two hundred dollars an hour to twenty five hundred dollars. They want to be famous too. They want to be famous too, and it's it, it it benefits them to be seen on camera at the range when they're when their marquee player is warming up. And absolutely, and I and I honestly know this: like a golfer doesn't need right the great play Ben Hogan, Sam Snead, Jack Nicholas. Like they achieved Lee Trevino. I mean, I could name you could go on and on all yep. the way through the seventies through the eighties until sort of one sort of you know compulsive individual named Nick Faldo needed. David Ledbetter around the clock and created this this sort of cottage industry of yep. of codependency, but <laughs> they but the great athletes, the great players like 
they just do it. And, and yes, they are better. The players that figured it out themselves that own their swing, that know what they're doing are the ones you're going to bank on down the stretch with nine holes to go. No doubt. No doubt. It's uh, the coach. The coach is not going to be able to teach you how to control all of those things when it, when it comes down right to it and you have to hit the shot and it's on you. And, uh, and the, and the other thing I want to say is that I think, and I'm, I definitely was in this era and I remember reading the Ledbetter book. And the one thing that I, I, I regret that's happened in the game is that all the swing instruction we watch, all the, all the talking heads and prognosticators, they've, they make it where if you're a kid growing up and you've got a sort of built-in kind of hitch or sort of so-called swing fault, you're made to be ashamed of like taking the club back square and open, whatever it might be that you did that's unorthodox. Matt that Wolf, wor- yeah. that worked. That worked. You were almost everyone sat there. The the sort of punditry and talking heads. The conventional wisdom was th- that you cannot survive that way and that you're going to have to you're going to have to follow the order that is you know the you know the um the sort of natural order of 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 following of of scrubbing every single idio swing idiosyncratic you know <laughs> idiosyncratic aspect of your swing out of it so that you look just like every other homogenized golf swing <laughs> on the driving range hey come on uh, it's, <laughs> thank, uh, god, thank god uh, you know Thank God that Jack Nicholas wasn't listening to somebody in 1966 about having his club face closed for the first couple of feet of the takeaway and that he didn't, you know, do something differently instead. Yeah, he, he did. Okay. He did. Okay. For sure. <laughs> All right, Colin, let's get to our podcast guest now, Brett Sergalis and his book, golf's Holy war. Great, great man. He's got a, uh, just a great book and a great perspective on the game. Can't wait to listen to this one here. Well, we're going to answer the question today, is golf an art or is it a science? Or maybe it's a little bit of both. Brett Sergalis is our next guest here on the Silver Club podcast. He's a veteran sports writer covering hockey and golf at the New York Post. He's covered almost all major sporting events from postseason baseball to Stanley Cup finals to the U.S. Opens of both golf and tennis. And we're just really happy to have Brett on our podcast today. Welcome, Brett. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now you're you're a, an accomplished golfer, and really a part of the Met Golf Writers Association. You're combining really your your two loves in in creating this great book that we're going to talk about: Golf's Holy War, the battle for the soul of a game in an age of science. It's coming out today. What sort of things prompted you to really get into writing this book? Well, accomplished golfer is a uh, relative term here, Steve. We well, can't... What's, what's your handicap? Uh, I go between scratch and three. Yeah, that's that's pretty accomplished for the most yeah. of the golfing world. I, I didn't play a lot. I played in high school. I didn't play in college. didn't play a lot when I started at the paper um, and started playing competitively again a couple of years ago. So I play in like some med amateur events and stuff, but it's hard to keep up with the college kids. Um so, you know, really, but that's how, that's kind of how this book came about was, um, I tell this story in the prologue, I was at a golf outing, um, as we all have been to where the carts are lined up and there's people on putting greens and driving range and box lunch with sliced apples. Right. And there's a, uh, there was a guy giving a presentation on the driving range. His name was Skip Watella. I don't know why I was paying attention because you never pay attention to those presentations, but I was, <laughs> And uh, he was giving this this uh, presentation uh, with a student, a woman who was on these things called flexor discs, which were like hard rubber balloons. Mm-hmm. So she's standing on them and he's like helping her move through the motions of the swing. And I'm kind of half paying attention. Um, and then he says that the the by standing on the disc, it's creating static electricity, which is helping open the neurotransmitters in her brain. So her brain and her body are communicating better. And so he's actually reteaching her a complex modern pattern subconsciously. Whoa. And so I was like, well, what the hell is this guy talking about? <laughs> you know? And so like I had been really into golf. And then kind of when I went to college and, and started working at the paper, I was, you know, I followed the pro game, but I wasn't super into the intricacies of it all. 
And I was like, well, what have I been missing? Is this what happened to the game? So I went up to this guy, Skip, and said, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> you know? And so he started to give me a little bit of an answer. And then, um, you know, he led me to, uh, I asked who uses it. He led me to David Glenn's former national teacher of the year, who at the time was out in uh, Jersey. Um, to talk to David Glenn's. He had a guy at, uh, that was working with him at, on the same range uh, named Henry Ellison, who was like a very spiritual, esoteric guy who kind of had this long history with technology and this, and then just started hating it and had this really interesting backstory. So I was like, man, this is a real conflict in the game right here. And I didn't know this really existed. Um, you know, and then I was, I was like, these two guys, this is, a, this is an interesting story. Uh, and then when you start looking a little deeper and you start spreading out into the world of pro golf and what's going on, you know, there is many very interesting, very deep rabbit holes you can fall down. Uh, and it and it really tells the story of, you know, we all kind of deal with technology in a different way nowadays. Uh, and, you know, it's it's the it's the question of modernity. It's how much how much do you want to deal with technology? How do you how do you how does this change the way you look at the world? And this is kind of the way it's projected on the game of golf. So that's kind of how it started. And I was lucky enough to kind of chase down all of these avenues as a reporter. And it was a lot of fun. Well, yeah, being a good player like you are, though, too. I mean, I'm sure that this changed your your personal golfing game, which way do you lean really? Do you lean more on the art or in the science? Yeah, you know, that's a fair question. Um, because I, I present the book, the only time the first person comes in is when I, in the prologue, when I explain how I started writing it. And then in the, in the epilogue, when I kind of tell this story about this trip to Bandon Dunes with a group, um, the Chivas Irons Golf Society. Um, so and, and everything in between, I'm trying to present as objectively as possible. Um, because I don't think, I guess maybe I'm of the old tradition where the reporter doesn't matter, right? You just, I'm not the story. The story is, if I tell it right, you don't need to know I exist. Um, but yeah, when I, when, when I started playing competitively again, when I started thinking about it, in 2016 i was you know now you have to deal with these questions you have to ask yourself these questions internally like how much do i want to know about TrackMan? how much do i want to use it right and how much do i want to kind of use all of this stuff for myself like how do how am i going to get better um so i think that's a question everybody answers differently but i think every great player and you would know this as well as anyone has always had a balance between knowing their own mechanics and, and, and technicality and knowing that feel is, is something you can't really teach. It's something in between, right? Right. I think, yeah, that's why we've seen, you know, the, the greatest player of our modern era, Tiger Woods, really. And you have a chapter in your book about Tiger and his goings on and going back and forth. But yeah, that, that's really the, he, he's such a technician but yet when he plays, he, he plays, and it's very much a, a feel-oriented sort of thing that he's, he's programmed himself to, to do. Right. right. And imagine if he lost that 96 amateur, who knows where he would be? <laughs> yeah, who knows? I, 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 I don't know. He would have been, uh, he would have gone down to maybe search for too many different teachers and all that. Who knows? Who yeah. knows? Well, well yeah. whoever he played, I don't know. But anyway... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what, though, Steve, you make a you make an interesting point with Tiger, though, because I do think that Tiger is the modern player. He is the guy that's come of age while all of the science and technology has come to the forefront. So how he has dealt with it, I think, is a perfect example of kind of how people deal with technology in everyday life, too. I mean, he used it and then, you know, took out what he thought was valuable and then incorporated it into what was already his own intrinsic understanding of the game so he you know he is the example I and mean, when you go through his teachers and the guys that he's worked with and the way he thinks about the game it has changed with the influx of technology so he's kind of like this modern example of this conflict projected on the game during this time right yeah no no other great player really has has gone through so many 
instructors like he has because he has this constant thirst of knowledge, I guess. And, right. and, you know, learning from guys, you know, from a Butch Harmon who's maybe not the, the track man school of thought to a, a really analytical Chris Como or Sean Foley. Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess I can't say from personal experience. I haven't had lessons from either of them, but from all accounts, they are, uh, they are really like that. Um, but just, just we'll, we'll dive a little bit more into the book in a moment. Just want to go back and kind of how you got into writing and talk about some of the things you do at the New York Post outside of the golf beat. And, you know, your, your main thing is covering NHL, I guess, mostly. Yeah. But, but yeah. you know, being a good player that you are, you have this, this thirst for jumping into golf too. But how did you get involved in writing and what, what gave you the love of writing? Well, geez, that's a, that's, that's not the easiest question to answer. Um, well, we, got, we got time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, actually, it uh, it started. So I when I played in, in high school, I I got like a couple sniffs to play D three, um, and then I got into Villanova, and was and great school. I talked to the coach there, and he asked me to try to walk on. Okay, I didn't make the team. Didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, but we knew I wanted to be an English major just cause I wanted to study what I liked. Um, so I was having a great time in school and I went to a class, I think it was sophomore year. I went to a class in the basement of the library. It was called writing for magazines. It was taught by this guy, Jeff Silverman, who had written for sports illustrated for a while. Um, he edited Bernard Darwin on golf. Um, he, he just wrote Marion's. He was marion's official club history so he has this kind of uh he's had a really nice career and you know he pushed me a little bit he's he's the one that handed me really good nonfiction. he handed me you know kay talise and tom wolf and and i i started really liking that and kind of going down that path so that's kind of what got me into it um and then jeff is a great guy and he's still you know, he would kick my butt because I was a lazy college kid who was trying to have fun. And he would be like, listen, I'll give you a C if you want, but rewrite it, you know? And I remember one time I wrote a a piece that was, you know, they were supposed to be for magazines. And I wrote something on amateur golf and he got me in touch with all these guys. And it was, it was really an interesting, fun time. So that's kind of how I went down that road. And then I, you know, I started at the paper uh, right out of college um, at the New York Post. And it's weird to think that 2006 was such a different time in media, but it was. I mean, I started as an agate clerk, what was called an agate clerk. What's um, that? The, the agate pages in the paper are like the stats and standings. Right. So we used to have, the New York Post used to have at least four pages of horse racing every day and like six or seven pages, depending on the day of agate. So it would be like, you know, and so my first schedule was Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, from six at night until two in the morning. So you'd be waiting for the Dodgers and Giants to finish so you can update the NL standings. You know, that's that wow. was it. You know, and you're making pennies. And I was the happiest kid in the world, you know, because <laughs> like you're in the news. It was it was a cliche newsroom, like like uh, Chinese food boxes knocked over, like dirty papers to the ceiling, like grinding out stories and papers and deadlines and people screaming it was it was you know there's three there's still three daily deadlines at the new york post you know so it's like but i i've never been into a newsroom but yeah just take yeah. take us yeah that's uh that's a good description of what yeah what sort of timelines do you have to get everything in by well the first the first edition it, it changes a little bit every day but during the week the first editions what we call off the floor which means all the pages have to be in and gone by 8.30 at night. So that's called our early edition. That prints at like in Florida and California, um, like Eastern Long Island and Jersey and places like that. And then there's another one at normally about 11.30 and then another one at 12.30 or one o'clock. Wow. And then after that, there's what's called replate, which is an old school term because there used to be plates in the printing press. So like, after that last edition is called the late city final starts running if something comes up like if the dodgers and giants don't finish until 115 you would replate so in in theory you would stop the presses pull the plate off replate it and put it back so and you go till two it can go till 2 30 in the morning so wow um (laughs) 
so that, you know, that's how you start and picking up the phone and people are calling and writers, these guys that I, I, you know, idolized growing up, you know, talking to George King and Joel Sherman and Mike McCarroll. And these guys are like, you know, heroes of mine. I'm a 22 year old kid. Um, and then eventually what happens is you get one day a week out to write. So you start with five days and then it's like, Hey, uh, Dick Clayman was the old uh, uh, assignment editor. He used to write the budget on a typewriter. No joke, like a typewriter. Wow. Um, and he would come out and go like, hey, Brett, there's a boxing press conference at Gallagher's Steakhouse tonight. You want to go? And I'd go, okay. So I'd go and we would write like boxing previews. Like that stuff doesn't even exist anymore. But I would go. I'd have to try to find out like who these people were. And you'd go and you'd sit down next to some heavyweight contender or non-contender like you know and then so it was one day a week out of the office and then it was two days a week and then eventually you get out of the office entirely so i haven't worked a desk shift in almost eight years um don't go into the office you know now it's all so i got the nhl beat which is uh we covered primarily the rangers we cover the rangers full-time we go in on the Islanders occasionally. So I do all, almost all the traveling with the Rangers for the last couple of years. Me and a colleague, Larry Brooks, kind of share mm -hmm. the beat a little bit. He's a longtime columnist in the hall. got in the Hall of Fame, Hockey Hall of Fame recently. So, wow. um, so I do all the traveling, um, playoffs, you know, the whole deal. So that's yeah. kind of how it starts. And then in the summers, there's, there's golf to be covered, you know. And so I always... I always covered golf in the summers, but we have two full-time golf. Well, we used to have two full-time golf writers, uh, Mark Canizero, who wrote a great book himself that just came out called Seven Days in Augusta. Right. Back I heard about Masters. that. Yeah. I heard about that. Yeah. He's got some really, really cool. I mean, he's covered 25 consecutive masters. So he's got a lot of really cool uh, vignettes in there. Um, so I'll go cover events with Mark. Um, and George Willis was the columnist. And we'd go and cover golf in the summers. I'd occasionally travel. If the, if the Open was closed, I'd go to Marion. Uh, you know, I covered that. I covered the Walker Cup at Marion, which was really cool mm -hmm. because I was, I was actually doing a feature on Morgan Hoffman, who was on that team. So, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been fun. It's been a fun ride. And, and you said you get to play a little bit. You, you play competitively at all within the, the Metropolitan Golf Association up there? Yeah, or? and the, the summers are, are hockey. You can stay, you stay busy covering hockey because like the draft is in June, free agency starts in July. And then kind of by about July 15th until like late August, you have about that time in there where it's pretty quiet. Yeah. Um, so I kind of have to take vacation during that time. And so, yeah, but like normally about this time of year, I'm trying to ramp it up a little bit. Um, and trying to practice because for nine months I really don't play a lot, you know. So um, that's also why it's tough. I'm finding it tougher now that I'm getting a little bit older too to hang with these kids because they're playing and or or you know you know what it's like too. Like these guys who are professional amateurs, you know, this is kind of what they do. In the winters they go to Florida and then they, you know they've never worked a job in their life and this is kind of how they roll. And when you have a full time job, it's hard to kind of practice. You know, it's, it's hard um, to keep hard to keep up with them for sure. There's yeah, there's, there's no doubt yeah. about, no doubt about that at all. But uh, yeah, let's let's get into the book just a little bit. And and this book has got a lot of praise. You know, just kind of reading <laughs> a lot of early praise, really. A lot some, of very nice people out there. <laughs> some, I mean, Jaime Diaz said a sophisticated and timely state of the game. Rarely has a golf writer been as illuminating. That's that's very high praise. How long did it take you to write this book and just kind of go through the process of how a, how a book gets out there and, and how far in advance you have to get all these quotes from all of these, these yeah. esteemed write, writers and people in the game? I mean, I see Brandel Chambly, Michael Bamberger, Tom Doak. I mean, you have uh, there's a lot of people who have read this book and have really liked it. Yeah. Well, you're making me blush, but... <laughs> um it is a little uncomfortable going out and asking for praise from people that you have so much respect for. And, and, you know, someone like Jaime who has such a storied career as, you know, it's still, uh, it's still weird to hear it that he said something so nice about me, but um, yeah, you know, the process is that outing where I was telling you about, that was the opening of pound Ridge, the Pete Dye golf course up here. So it was 2008. Um, I got a deal. I signed the book deal with Simon Schuster in 2012. So 
and now it's coming out now, May 5th, 2020. Wow. So I rewrote it. I had to rewrite it. This is pretty much the third draft of the book. Not And not draft as in tweaks, drafts as in. I remember my first manuscript, I, my editor is, uh, is outstanding. Same guy that's worked with Mike Bamberger. He's worked with Susan Orlean and Joe Posnanski. And he's, he's just a phenomenal guy. And I'm, I was very lucky uh, to work with him because he gave me the time and the space to do it where I put in my first draft. It was really long. It was rambling, but I just needed to get it down. You know, I needed to do something. He was like, Hey, great, great job. Yeah, you got it all. You got it all down. You did all this. You know, I reported for two years or so, and then I got it all down. Awesome. He read it. Okay. Now redo the whole thing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> So that's pretty, I mean, he said it in a nicer way, but that was pretty much the, and then, okay, so I cut it a little bit. I redid it again, do it again. So this third, so when I sat down to write the third one, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to write whatever I think should be, whatever I want to, rather than what I think should be written, you know? So when I did that, I wrote the first three chapters uh, and sent it to him. He was like, this is great. Keep going. Um, so you know, it's a hard, it's a hard process, you know, but I, I've been asked a couple of times from, you know, college students or, or young people that want to get into like this, this business, um, want to write books and stuff. And, you know, you have to, you know, what I say is you have to want to do it for yourself. Like that's kind of the only way you get through those tough times is because if you're thinking about selling it and making money and being famous, it's like, that, that shouldn't matter because you're not going to get through it. It's not going to be good. What You have to love it. You, like, you have to love the work. So there are times I loved it more than other times, right. but, but you have to like really enjoy it. And, and, you know, the reporting on this book, I had such a interesting, fun time doing, because if you think about it, like I had something that I found incredibly interesting and I was given the opportunity to go make every phone call, take every flight, knock on every door, you know, and, and find out about it. You know, you start, you start reading about the golfing machine. And I went out to San Francisco and met Ben Doyle, who was the first authorized instructor of the golfing machine, taught Bobby Clampett, you know, right. and I was really fortunate to do that because then Ben happened to pass on to, you know, a couple of years later. And it was, you know, I felt, I felt really fortunate to be able to do that meeting Michael Murphy and talking about golf in the kingdom and stuff like that. So it's like, it's like this, this, uh, if you have this idea of something really interesting and then you get to totally explore it, like that was the most fun of the whole process. Well, you've got some neat topics in the book and I'll just kind of, we can talk about a few of them. Uh, explain your relationship that you have in there just a bit between golf and religion. I thought that was, that was fascinating. Yeah. Well, you know, this is, it's part of this, this broader scope um, of kind of, you know, with, with this influx of science that we're dealing with in the last couple of decades, it's kind of changing the way people look at the world because it's becoming, people are gravitating towards more concrete ideas and they, and they, they, they feel like the world is becoming more solvable. Right. So there, so when it comes to religion, you know, like it's people are drifting away from these uh, these larger ideas um, of I don't want to say you know faith, but but that the world is not solvable, right? That there are these mysteries that exist, mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people don't like mystery, you know, and that's being that's being you know chased down and criticized now through throughout yeah there's lots of there's there's a few different types of the ball flight laws for example right i mean they're right the old school ball flight laws and now the new school ball flight laws and open faces can actually produce a draw a right to left right. shot for a right-handed player that sort of thing uh yeah that's that's pretty interesting then you dive in we talked a little about tiger woods before but you kind of go about how how golfers and coaches sought out to emulate Wood's swing, but now Tiger has kind of gone back to mainly working on his own, right? He's, he's kind of taken all this information that he's gathered and maybe he's become his own best teacher out there. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, that's part of it. It's it's knowing yourself really well. And that's part of figuring out what kind of information you want to use, right? So, you know, in Tiger, when TrackMan first started becoming popular, it was, you know, Tiger was saying these these numbers are law. You know, this is it. Like there's no getting around it. And he's right, but it's how you how you deal with that. So, you know, then it, golf is such a strange game in the fact that you have all this time to think about it. You have all this time to, to look and analyze at what you're doing. Um, but you don't really know what's happening. You know, I think one of the best things that Tiger says, and I think one of these quotes that'll be attached to him for forever is when he was playing, when he's playing his best, that's when feel meets real. So it's, you know, if we could all swing like Tiger in 2000, we would, right? You know, if you can just tell yourself to put your hands here and your body here and your hips here, you know, you would do it, but you can't do that. Your body and your brain don't work like that, right? I mean, there's a, there's a thing called proprioception, which is a sense of where you are. So, you know, if you put your hand behind your head, you think you know where it is, but you're, you're probably not right. You know, so sometimes you feel like it, like I'm sure you've done this and anyone that's ever really tried to play the game at a high level, you, you know, you don't know you're doing things. You don't know the clubs behind you. You don't know your hands around, you know, you don't, there are certain the things clubs you don't, laid off at the top or right, whatever. right. You don't, you don't know these things are happening. And then when you, but you can't tell yourself to fix them because that's not the way your brain works. So really, I also think the, the, uh, the cutting edge of science right now too in golf is neuroscience. It's learning how we learn, you know, and I touch on this in the book too, is that this is, this is kind of where it's at at this point where we've, we've figured out neuroscience has figured out that the, the way the brain operates is that we create lasting memories uh, and you can retrain yourself complex modern pattern like Skip Latella was doing through implicit experience not through explicit learning so you don't you know saying like hey put your hand right here or put the club right here or you're laying it off at the top right like stop doing that do this you don't that's not the way you learn that's not the most efficient way to learn it's teaching through experience it's it's learning through failing through playing you know so michael hebron talks a lot about that i know that you you yeah. spent some time he's a long island guy and uh, always talking and learning about i mean if you want you want to understand how to how the brain learns in golf for sure michael hebron's your guy mike is mike is great um such as such as interesting history in the game i mean he was national teacher of the year in 91 when he was a golfing machine guy i mean he he can go through he can go through the sequence of the 24 variables if you want to in the golfing machine but he had this revelation in the early 90s that he, when he was teaching people, they weren't getting better and he didn't know why. And it's because he didn't understand how people learn. So he started taking classes. He started, you know, he was taking classes. He has, he still is at, at Harvard. He's become friends with a professor, a doctor out at UCLA. And he kind of, and he's written books with another doctor, a, a retired neuroscientist uh, at Stony Brook University. You know, so he, he's learned all. And so when you go, so I really haven't taken a lot of lessons in my life, less than 10, but I like to go to Mike maybe once a year. I like to just hang out with him, to be honest. Just to but, chat with him. He's a, he's such an interesting guy. Yeah. And so the times I've been like, Hey Mike, you take a look at my swing. It's like his lessons are not, it's not what you would expect. You know, it's not a regular lesson. It's this very like uh, ambiguous kind of, thing where like but you he's helping you get better you know and he's you don't you don't really know that you're getting better though i think that that's the that's the right. magic and the beauty of what he does and i'm sure but i'm you know what he probably read me and knew that i getting back to your question from a while ago is that yeah i kind of lean towards the artistic side a little bit where i don't the way my brain works is i don't think very well with exact numbers and whatnot um so mike probably read me and and knows that and figured out that I kind of, this is the way I wanted to hear, I wanted to hear it, you know? So 
it's like, uh, Mike, I think I'm spinning it too much and, and getting a little steep. And he was like, all right, we'll swing it as flat as possible. Now I was like, okay. And he's like, all right, now take it back all the way. And then, you know, after a while, I'm just flushing drivers you know, on a rope. And it's, it's like, okay, good. You need, you know, now what? Like, you want to have lunch? Like, that was it. You know, and that's kind of, you know, and then you work on it and whatever else. But, you know, he's, he, but he's at that forefront where he knows that's kind of how, that's kind of the direction we're going that's kind of the next wave in teaching in golf instruction is is understanding how to teach uh with using someone's implicit experience rather than explicit information it's it's all very interesting and it can be you know it can be a little complicated for some people who don't understand but michael hebron certainly uh is at the forefront of teaching people how to learn Uh, also talk about architecture and its relation to technology explain the connection that you see between these two entities yeah you know um i've been asked a couple of times about what i think about rolling the ball back and equipment because i i don't get into a ton of equipment in the book because i i, I want i didn't want it to be too dated you know and i don't really think it matters that much what size the heads are though coefficient of you know whatever it doesn't matter um but i think the answer really is is better golf courses and a better architecture and better maintenance you know i mean i think the example i go to is watching the president's cup last year at royal melbourne and it's a it's a brilliant golf course that was fast and firm and those guys can hit it a mile and you still needed to be in position to hit to you, you know you couldn't you had to think your way around that place uh, and you couldn't just bomb it. You know, you have, you have to be in the right position because it's, because it's such a brilliantly designed golf course and it was maintained in such a way that you, and you have to hit it. So you have a wedge in your hand, you still got to hit it 15 feet left of the hole, because if you hit it right at the hole, it's going to bounce right. And it's going to go into a runoff and you, you good luck getting up and down. To me, that's the answer. And good architecture has always been the answer to why the game is interesting. It, it's, it's the field of play that makes golf, it makes it the thoughtful game that draws out your athletic ability, you know? And so it, it like our architecture really to me is, is, is the answer to the equipment problem. Who's your favorite architect out there? Uh, now <laughs> or yeah, ever. Uh, uh, give me your top three. Could be current, uh, could be, could be uh, one of the old dead guys. Whoever. Yeah, well, I'm, I, you know, it's probably a cliche, but like, you know, I think Alistair McKenzie, that stuff is the best. And I love template holes, you know, like, so, so obviously the CB McDonald and, and Rainer stuff, but to me, McKenzie's, he used those ideas and created original artistic design. So that's why McKenzie kind of nudges past those guys. And, and Tilling has for me too, being on Long Island and, you know, with, with Beth Page right here, I grew up playing a lot at Beth Page and you go up to Wingfoot and see that. And it's like, it's just, it's tremendous, you know? So the, to me, those guys are the, are the best. And then, but you know, now Tom Doak and, 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 you know, Corin Crenshaw and Gil Hans, those guys are, are doing awesome work and, and modern, they're, they're modern guys, but it's with these old school feelings in their design. So it's cliche to say, you know, the best guys are the best, but it's, it's true. <laughs> right. The, uh, yeah. Alistair McKenzie, I was looking on your website earlier, brettsergalis.com and, and it was, uh, you've got a great picture on the 16th hole at Cypress point. Yeah. And Cypress yeah. point is, is like, it's like the greatest three act play out there. You go up into the forest and then the next, you know, that's the first six holes or so. And then the next six holes are in the dunes. And then yeah. the last six holes are out there on the ocean. It's uh, yeah, just it is. It's a it's a course that'll stand the test of time in a lot of ways, and uh, yeah, spectacular. Yeah, it's uh, that's a, that's a very special place. I mean, you, Gil Gil Hans, uh, you know, I, I told me once that you know the best golf courses give you a sense of place, right? So you kind of when you're out there, you feel the grandeur of the Pacific Ocean. You know, it's and and the the scope of what's around you. And it's not really like Mackenzie got too in the way. 
you know, and it's just letting, letting you see the surroundings and feel like you're part of this experience, you know, and I, I was talking to someone the other day about this too, that I think one of the most attractive things about golf is that you feel like when you play, you're, you're part of history. Right. When you step onto a place like Cypress Point or you go to St. Andrews or someplace like that, you you're you're taking part in history. You feel like you're part of it, you know, and you're interacting. So it's like even if you could go to Lambeau Field and step on the field, you're not playing an NFL game there, but you can go play St. Andrews. You know, you can go play if you, you know, if you can go play Cypress Point or like one of these great places. And it's and you're part of it. You're walking. I mean, even you walk on the grounds at Shinnecock at a U.S. Open, you're walking along history. You're part of it. Um, and that is like one of the biggest attractions to the game. And, and these these landmarks, these these pieces are these historical pieces are nurtured by people that care about the game so much, like the memberships at Cypress Point and Shinnecock. And they they care about their their place so much that it's held in such high reverence. And if you can experience it, it's it's like you're being part of history and that connects you more to the game and, and makes you care about it more. Yeah, there's no question about that. And yeah, you talk about history and you talk about, uh, I mentioned at the outset of, the, of our podcast, I mentioned that you covered a lot of sports, not only hockey, not only golf. Uh, before I let you go here today, what's the, what's the greatest event you've ever covered and why was it so great huh that's an interesting question you know um when the rangers were making their run in 2014 um they they made it to the stanley cup final uh but in the middle in the second round they were down 3-1 to the penguins we didn't think everyone that was covering the team didn't think they were all that good um and i remember we were in pittsburgh uh, and me and a group of reporters, we kind of cheers to the end of the season. And like, uh, he was like, okay, well, that was a fun run. The second round, you know, whatever, here we go in the summertime, I'm thinking about playing golf, you know? And, um, and then we found out that Marty San Luis mom had died, unexpectedly died. Uh, so Marty was a veteran player on that team. He had just come, he would, the Rangers traded captain for captain. They traded their guy Callahan to, uh, Tampa Bay and got Marty St. Louis back not to drag this on and on but so Marty's mom dies we find out I have to run back and write to the hotel room uh and then they go on this epic run to the to the Stanley Cup final they just ride this wave of emotion the Eastern Conference final you know I'll probably say that was the best was the Eastern Conference final was against the Canadians so it was going game in game one Chris Kreider runs their Hall of Fame to be Hall of Fame goalie Carey Price I would he would hate it if I if he heard me say he ran him, but he's, <laughs> that's he, what he did. <laughs> he, he ran into him and he was injured. And then the, you know the Rangers coach is speaking in and the and the Canadians coach both are friendly. They're both French Canadians. They're speaking in French and then they're speaking in English. And Montreal is such a great city, and they're talking smack about each other and they're going back and forth. And it was just like it was nonstop action. And the games were great, uh, and it was a lot of fun. And that city, Montreal, is such a great city. And, uh, and then they made it to the final. And, you know, then, and the Rangers ended up winning. Um, and they made it to the final and lost to the Kings. So that was probably the most fun. It was a lot. I remember I turned, I turned 30. My 30th birthday, I uh, was in JFK, and I was sitting at the bar at a Buffalo Wild Wings. And the woman asked if I wanted something to drink. And I was sitting there writing. It was, I think it was a 9 a.m. flight out to L.A. And I thought about getting a beer or something and then said no. And then I was like, it's eight in the morning. Like, what am I talking about? You know, <laughs> Because it had been such a long run. That, like, yeah. I had I didn't know what day it was. I didn't know what time it was. But you just get like consumed in the in the every day of it. And that's kind of, you know, it's a lot of work, but it's it can be a lot of fun, too. Yeah, that's that's cool. Well, we we will get back to sports in the world sooner rather than later yeah you've had a bit of a downtime as we yeah. all have uh unfortunately but we will we will all get back and doing all the things that we we love to do uh where can everybody get your book you can get it anywhere books are sold so 
you know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, you can go right to simonandschuster.com. You can get it. If you want to support a local bookstore, there's a great website called bookshop.org where you, uh, you, you order the book and then it goes through a local uh, bookseller. So that's probably the nicest way to do it, especially in this time where local small businesses are struggling. That's probably the best way to do it. That's a great point. And your, your website, brettsirgalis.com, B-R-E-T-T-C-Y-R-G-A-L-I-S.com. So it was really a pleasure having you on here, Brett. Again, the book, Golf's Holy War, comes out today. So please hop on the, all the sites we just mentioned and go grab Brett's book. It's, uh, it's definitely worth, worth your time reading. And we really appreciate you being on the Silver Club podcast today, Brett. Thank you, Stephen. Hopefully, uh, hopefully we get to play some golf at a Silver Club over one of these days. Yes, yes. That sounds like a, like a really good plan. That's, it's I'll gonna, take four, it, four aside. <laughs> it's going to happen. It's going to happen. All right. Talk to you soon. Thank you. All right. Thanks. See you. A big thank you once again to Brett Sergalis and giving his time to us today on the Silver Club podcast. Go out there and get his book. It is fantastic. It is out right now, so check it out. And thank you, all of our Silver Club podcast listeners, for downloading and subscribing to all of our great podcasts over time. Check us out on our social media pages once again at Silver Club Golf on Instagram and Twitter. We're on Facebook, too. And check out our website, Silver Club GS. We've got a few new events and new dates for the fall time. We've had to push a few things back as everything else has. We look forward to seeing everybody real soon on the golf course. But until next time, everybody, stay healthy, stay safe, and we look forward to bringing you another Silver Club podcast real soon.